It's really weird talking to a group of people with masks on their face. But it's like you're all shop mannequins or something. Anyway. So the, the youngest son in our family um, shares his name with the Old Testament prophet Elijah. And um, interestingly enough, as the years have gone by, uh, he's turned out to be the member of the family who is generally the most outspoken. If he has an opinion, uh, he's not afraid to share it. Um, he is also the member of the family most likely to come up with tricky theological questions and even interesting theological insights. Um, although there are occasions where he tries to pass off uh, the occasional uh, utterance as a, a word from the Lord um, that generally doesn't come to pass, things like, I, I will not wash the dishes, or uh, you can't make me. Um, both, both things that you never say in front of your mother if you actually expect them to be fulfilled. Um, however, uh, I was really caught off guard one day when Elijah was about four years old. Um, I can see the scene quite well. I can't remember quite what he was doing. I think he was drawing a picture. And uh, so I asked him what his picture was about, and he showed me a picture of uh, obviously a king with a big sword in his hand. And I said, well, you know, what's, what's going on here? And he said to me, he looked me in the eye and said, Jesus is a king, and he is going to fight you. Well... You know, it's a little bit funny, it's obviously cute, uh, but it's actually quite profound. In all seriousness, he's dead right. Jesus is a king, and he's going to fight you. Because as we come to the third and final chapter of Joel's short book, that's exactly what we have. We have the God who fights. Remember, he began uh, with back in chapter 1 with a vision of a locust plague, a, 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 an ecological and humanitarian disaster that was bearing down upon the people of Judah and Jerusalem sometime around the mid to late 6th century BC. And he hit them with this startling revelation. This army is, this, this plague is God's army. Your God, the Lord, is coming with an insect invasion to make war on you. And he's going to leave the land stripped and his people desolate. As we turned... Um, sorry, that, that, we, we talked about how uh, Joel had a, a phrase for this. It was called the day of the Lord. And this is a common way in the prophets for speaking about what's happening when God engages directly in human affairs to assert his divine Authority, And we saw that when the Lord comes on his day, it is often attended um, with great signs in creation. The, the, the creator of all things turns up and the cosmos goes into disarray. The sun and the moon stop shining. The stars fall from the sky. The heavens and the earth shake. And the Lord, Lord's voice thunders. Judah was in deep trouble. God was going to un create them. Except, this was not the end of God's dealings with his people. The purpose of the locust plague was to call, uh, call people back to him. God was intending to get their attention. He was intending to drive them to their knees. He was intending to, to cause them to seek him out again. 
And so last week we turned the page partway through Joel 2 and we heard God's response to his people's cry on the day of this disaster. And he announced a great reversal in their fortunes. Um, He was going to renew all things. And most importantly, he was going to put an end to this cycle of their disobedience, their failure, and his punishment of them. Never again, he said, will my people be put to shame. A new day was coming. And again, this was phrased as a day of the Lord. Once again, we had cosmos-shaking signs as Joel announced a day in which God would pour his spirit out upon all people. And we saw this was a, a great renewal that was going to work its way into human hearts and out into all creation. Well, it's no surprise then to get to Joel chapter 3 and find that Joel's big theme is once again the day of the Lord. We get a fresh view of this day, but now it's a day of judgment. And once again, God appears as the warrior who fights. Only this time, he's going to fight for his people against their enemies. So it begins in verse 1 with God's own voice. See now, on those days and at that time, I will turn away from sending Judah and Jerusalem into captivity. Now God turns to address the nations, the rest of humanity, and calls them to account. And what we have in the following verses is a courtroom scene. A summons is issued, charges are laid, a punishment is promised. And so God calls upon the nations to gather. And like any summons, this is is not optional, it's enforced. And he brings them into a courtroom called the Valley of Jehoshaphat, Now, this isn't a real place that anybody knows of. Um, Probably has nothing to do with King Jehoshaphat that we read about in the book of 1 Kings because Jehoshaphat is a Hebrew name that means God judges or God decides. And so the other name Joel gives this courtroom is the Valley of Decision. And charges are now laid against the nations, the kidnapping and the imprisonment of God's people. When did this happen? Well, repeatedly, actually, through the history of God's people, they have always been under threat from the nations around about them. Either that those nations will take them into captivity and swallow them up, or that they would simply uh, fold themselves into those nations and disappear. Um, It it begins with Abraham. Abraham was a a quasi-prisoner of the Egyptians for a time, and, and in the court of King Abimelech, one of the local kings. His grandson Jacob was under threat when he was essentially a prisoner of his scheming uncle Laban. And then, of course, Israel served Egypt 400 years as slaves. And they really weren't much better off once they were back in the land. Time and time again, their enemies, the the Philistines, the Canaanites, the Ammonites, attempted to subdue them and overrun them. And obviously, of course, there comes a day when the Assyrian Empire and the Babylonian Empire do overrun them. And as the Lord goes on with his charge, he narrows it down to three nations in particular, Philistia, Tyre, and Sidon, the the coastal nations who are traditional enemies of Israel. And the Lord puts them on notice that their determined opposition to his people is in fact an attack against him. 
What do you have to do with me, Tyre and Sidon and the districts of Philistia? What can you give as a recompense to me? What can you give to me? Swiftly and speedily, I will return your reward upon your heads. A sentence is pronounced. As you did to my people, I will now do to you. And then verses 9 to 17 is, is addressed to the nations in general again as God once more summons them to court at the Valley of Jehoshaphat, but this time orders the nations to prepare for battle. He is going to fight them. Well, what's going on here? Well, once again, we don't merely take Joel's words at face value. He isn't predicting some historical battle in the future or at some, space, uh, some place in time. He's revealing the unseen significance of events that have played out and, and are continuing to play out on the world stage of history. And so we're left asking again, what does he mean? Now, these various nations that are named here, these oppressors of Israel probably never got to hear Joel's address. They never heard the summons or the charge or the sentence. And I suspect, nor would they have cared. Because in the larger scheme of things, in the ancient Near Eastern world, uh, the nation of Israel was very small and extremely insignificant. I mean, they could barely stand up to their, their immediate neighbours, to the Philistines and the, the Edomites, let alone serious players on the world stage like Egypt or Assyria or Babylon or Persia. From our standpoint in human history, um, we can easily explain the various conquests and wars of the ancient Near East as political or economic events. Essentially, humans doing what humans always do. They, they use power, to, they use force to, to seize power and to seize wealth for themselves. It's the victory of the strongest. But this isn't quite how people of the ancient Near East would have viewed war. Because war for them was principally a religious affair. It was a holy affair. And there's no denying that ancient kings and warlords were totally political and were extremely motivated by greed, but they knew the success of their politics rested upon the power of the gods they served. Your gods fought for you, and they fought with you. You served that god. And failure in battle could mean um, either your God has deserted you in your hour of need, or worse still, your God is actually inferior to the God of your opponents, or worse still again, your God may not even be real. So God's summons and challenge to the nations together is actually a summons and challenge to the gods. He's calling on them to prove themselves in battle. And, and you, you realise for a puny little nation like Israel, um, for, for, for his God to announce that he is now taking on the nations and the gods of the world would have been laughable for the great empires of the era. But that's exactly what the Lord is doing through the prophet Joel. He's laying claim to absolute sovereignty. That's why when he turns up for battle, the whole universe stops and pays attention. Because he alone is the true creator, and the other gods are fakes. And more than that, all the nations who through history have oppressed Israel are shown to be God's puppets, 
people that, nations that haven't actually acted at their own resolve, they've been doing his bidding. He's using them to work something out with his people in the world. And that doesn't make them innocent, by the way. They are, they are still held liable for their choices and actions. But God is showing himself to be the Lord of history. So that in ways beyond human reckoning, he's drawing the events of human history towards the outcome of his choosing. And that will include all the atrocities, all the suffering, all the destruction that attends human history. And in the courtroom of the Valley of Jehoshaphat, God addresses the evil that's playing itself out on the world stage. Verse 13. Swing the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, trample the grapes, for the winepress is full and the vats overflow. So great is their wickedness. Evil has had its day. It is coming to an end. It, it's been allowed to grow and ripen, and a day is coming when it will be plucked and it will be crushed. Neither the peoples of the world nor the demonic forces behind them will get away with anything. Accounts are being called in, and justice is going to be done by Israel's God. Well, it's worth noting at this point as we go through Joel 3 that he, he skips any description of a battle. He, he jumps straight to the, the end of the battle. I mean, if we were turning Joel, uh, the book of Joel into a film, we'd want some big, grand, extended battle scene rendered in CGI to, to really wake us up and keep us interested. But Joel goes right to the end. War here is a foregone conclusion. In verse 12, we find God taking his seat to judge. You understand, kings sit down once they have won the battle, once they have brought everyone and everything to heal. So we began with a locust plague in southern Palestine. God come to deal with his people. Joel has now taken a couple of big steps back to show us the larger significance of what's going on with Israel. God has come to settle accounts with all of humanity. The day of the Lord has come, and it is now a day of judgment. Oh, this is a bit of an unsettling concept for many of us. The, the, the concept of the day of judgment has often been used in Christian preaching to, to, to trade in fear. And we've often come to attach the images of you know, the sun and the moon being darkened, the stars falling from the sky, the, the heavens and earth shaking. We've often attached those images to the things we fear most. When I was a kid, they would be trotted out in connection with the threat of nuclear holocaust. That was the, 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 the impending doom that we lived under. Um, today's generation is living under the cloud of climate change. That's the big doom that's approaching us. And in another generation's time, uh, it'll be another cloud of doom. Uh, you know, I don't know, a global pandemic or something like that maybe. Um, and we have a lot of stories we tell now in our books and, and at the movies uh, that are obsessed with a dystopian view of the future. 
They routinely figure a few characters. A completely ruined planet Earth, um, the end of human civilization as we know it, um, the degradation of the remaining humans who, who are alive, who are basically reduced to barbarians, um, and, and, and a picture of a world that is generally devoid of God, devoid of hope, and devoid of meaning. And we've coined a, a word to refer to this vision of the future. We often call it an apocalypse. Actually, that's a word we've borrowed from the Bible. As you remember, we were looking at the book of Revelation a few weeks ago, um, and, and the proper name in Greek of the book of Revelation is, is roughly apocalypse. Not because Revelation is a grim book predicting the doom and, and, and gloom and the end of the world, but because apocalypse is a kind of literature. It's a kind of literature, it's a kind of way of speaking in which you are unveiling, taking off the cover, is what apocalypse means, and showing us what's really going on. Apocalypse and revelation don't actually mean catastrophic end of the world. But that's how we've come to think of the end of all things, haven't we? We're a bit like the rest of our culture. The, the day of judgment is for us often uh, a feared day of uncertainty, a day clouded with anxiety as though history and ourselves is hurtling towards a very uncertain ends. But I would like you to see today that the day of judgment is in fact good news. It is good news. Look at verses 16 and 17 of Joel 3. The Lord roars from Zion and from Jerusalem thunders. The heavens and earth shake, but the Lord is a refuge for his people, a mountain fort for the sons of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain. Jerusalem will be holy and foreigners will no longer pass through her. The Lord who sits in court to judge the nations is also the Lord who comes to dwell, to take up a seat among his people. The Lord who roars in warfare against the nations is his own people's refuge, their fortress against war. The Lord who is crushing the evil nations of the earth and putting an end to evil is busy renewing his own people, making them holy. On the day of judgment, the Lord, the warrior of Israel, is present with his people both to save them and to renew them. And so it's no surprise that Joel's depiction of the day of judgment then concludes with the same imagery of abundance and, and thriving overflow of life that we saw last week in chapter 2. We, we have mountains dripping with wine, hills flowing with milk. Turns out the day of judgment is, is kind of more Charlie's chocolate factory than it is, you know, the Terminator. The day of the Lord's judgment is good news because God is drawing all the events of history towards his intended outcome. And so the book of Joel brings us ultimately back to the book of Revelation. 
because um, a very similar thing is going on there. In Revelation, the Apostle John is surveying the flow of history, uh, again, not recording literal events from the future as though he'd kind of jumped in a TARDIS and when he got there pulled out his Samsung Galaxy and filmed what was going on. He's lifting the lid on human history and showing us where it is going, showing us what is the unseen significance of the seen events around us. And so John gives us sights of, of great plagues, terrifying ecological and humanitarian disasters called forth by God himself. He shows us behind all of that a, a satanic trinity at work in human affairs, this great devouring serpent and its mutant creatures, one that it calls up from the sea and, and one that it calls up from the earth. They have a mission. The mission is to oppress and enslave God's people. But in all of this, the Apostle John trains us to fix our sights on God's throne room. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, fully in charge of history and fully worthy to hold the reins of history. And as he goes through Revelation, John throws our line of sight continually forward to this final battle that we read part of in Revelation 19 this morning. And it's a chapter that's much like Joel 3. At the head of the battle, we have a warrior, a warrior on a white horse. Now, readers of Revelation will instantly recognize who this is. We've, we've met him several times through the book, but preeminently, this is Jesus, who we met in chapter 1. And, and there we had a collage of images, one of which was the one who has a sword, a double-edged sword, coming out of his mouth. Well, in this scene, that sword is at work. He has come to fight the nations. He has come to tread them in a wine press. He has come to defeat both the serpent and its mutant representatives. And like Joel 3, we don't get to see this battle. It's, it's over as soon as it's announced. We only see the aftermath. And what we see are two things that follow. God's enemies are fully, finally defeated. Evil is thoroughly spent and evil is crushed. It's come to an end. God's kingdom now comes into full flower. And what Joel described in a, just a couple of lines in verse 18 of chapter 3, John now describes in two whole chapters of Revelation. Joel had a little peak of a new Eden, right? That's what mountains dripping with wine, hills running with milk, overflowing watercourses, that's what they represent. Well, John has more than that. He has a new heaven and a new earth. He has a heavenly city, which he depicts as an architectural splendor filled with all the physical and cultural wealth of human civilization and containing in its middle a garden, a new Eden, but one that's vastly beyond the glory of the original Eden. But he doesn't stop there. There's more. Because the real glory of this city it's not its beauty or its flourishing life. The real beauty of this city, the real glory, is the presence of its king. The heavenly throne room that he showed us back in chapters 4 and 5 is contained in this city. Or actually, to put it more correctly, this city 
has grown up around the throne room. Humanity has been brought into the circle of God's rule to live in his presence. Now, I really fail to do justice both to Joel and to John's visions, but you know, suffice it to say, both are images of the thriving people of God. Uh, images of a kingdom that is rich and abundant, a kingdom that is a secure place beyond danger and threat. A kingdom in whose people humanity are raised up and restored to their full glory. They have become what God always intended them to be. And at the centre of all this is God's presence with them, with us. The triumph of his rule. Well, that's everything that Joel was straining towards. If Revelation was the, the feature film, Joel was the trailer. And like all good trailers, Joel is there to whet our appetites for more. But he's not going to give you the whole story. A good trailer doesn't give away the most important details. They're left out. So remember that Joel posed an important question at the start of all of this. Where is God? Well, in chapter 3, he brings us back to the answer of that question. God is present with his people. He is present to save them and make them holy. But Joel doesn't tell us how that's going to come about. And so that brings me back to the words of Elijah the prophet. Um, Elijah from the suburb of Leeming. That is not Elijah from the book of Kings. Jesus is a king and he's going to fight you. Jesus the king is the God who fights the rider on the white horse, the one with the sword coming from his mouth. He is coming with a day of retributive justice. He is going to call out the fake gods. He is going to pass decision upon all who put their trust in those gods. And it can't be otherwise. If we are people free to make choice, then we are free to choose God's rule or not choose God's rule. But of course, like all choices, the mere possession of choice is no guarantee of the correctness of one's choice. We're free to make a bad choice. And like all bad choices, as those of you who have lived long enough, like me, and made enough bad choices to learn, all bad choices obviously come with a result. They, they ultimately bear a fruit. They are ultimately exposed as bad choices. And that is what Jesus comes to do. Not because he delights in destruction. Not because he likes mayhem. Quite the opposite, in fact. But ultimately, a bad choice in life is a choice against God's rule. And it's intrinsically a choice that has no possibility of life in it. It, it is, by definition, a choice closed off to the possibility of human flourishing. It is inevitably a choice of death. Evil in all its forms has been allowed to grow and ripen. But it will be finally dealt with, fully, plucked and crushed. Well, Revelation shows us something else, and that is that the kingship of Jesus is most fully expressed not as a warrior, but as a lamb. 
the final scene of Revelation, that this, this uh, glorious city doesn't have the rider on the white horse seated on the throne, it concludes with the description of Jesus as we met him in Revelation 5. The lamb looking as though it was slain, seated upon the throne. This is how Jesus rules as a king. This is how Jesus takes on evil in the world. And this is where the God of retributive justice is also the God of grace. At the cross, where God the Son allowed the ripening harvest of evil to crush him. At the cross, where God the Son turned now, not to fight against us, but to fight for us and to become our refuge and our stronghold. In him and him alone, we are secured against the day of wrath. Romans 5 verse 9. Since we have now been made righteous by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Well, Joel began with a locust plague, a day of disaster intended to draw God's people back to him. Joel concludes now with a day of judgment, which is intended now to call all the nations back to him. Because between these two days, Joel saw another day, didn't he? A day in which God would pour out his spirit upon all people. And as we saw last week, that was the moment at which the mission to all people began. Because now the spirit wasn't simply poured out upon God's select people, Israel. Now all people could share in the Holy Spirit. Jew and Greek alike. That's how Paul sums it up well in his letter to the Romans where he borrows words from Joel chapter 2 to express what God is doing in all of this. He says, There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For Joel 2, 32, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Friends, today is the day. Today is the day to be done with doom and gloom about the future. Today is the day to put to death anxiety about where things will end up. We know now where things will end up and we know now who is in charge of the outcome. Today is the day to call upon him because he has secured our lives. He will conduct us safely into the presence of God the Father. He will conduct us safely into a flourishing resurrection life. And today is also the day if you don't know him. Today is the day to come to him who is your only hope, your only reasonable choice. Not because there is a day of judgment in which he will crush you, but because there is a day of unimaginable richness and life that he would invite you into. Come and call upon him. Amen.